We're going to start the way we always start before jumping into the text. We're going to uh, have our kids jump into a uh, conversation here, let the kids know where we're going uh, with what we're about to read and uh, what we're about to talk about. Kids, anybody know what book of the Bible we are in? Job. We're in the book of Job. It's in the Old Testament. And here's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, if you've ever been to an Astros game and you've stayed, you know, for the whole game, towards the end, there's this thing that comes on that's called the Astros Flex Cam. And kids, when that thing comes on, if you've been there, what are you supposed to do when the Flex Cam comes on? <laughs> You're supposed to flex. You're supposed to, oh, yes, yes, look at that. And uh, Kids, do you all know, show how strong you are. Kids, have you seen uh, the guys, the girls, who wear cut-off t-shirts or they wear they wear tight-fitting shirts and it shows off their muscles that's not a new thing that's not a new thing that's been around forever and ever and ever in the ancient near east guys used to wear long flowing robes and they would roll up their sleeves to show off their arms and they would show off their arms in order to tell everybody look how strong i am like, do you see this? Do you see how strong I am? I can take care of, uh, I can, hey, I can fight. Uh, I can take care of my family. I can uh, take care of my friends. I can take care of anyone I need to. So they used to do that all the way, all the way back in the day. It's nothing new. We still do it today. Kids, have y'all ever hung on your, your dad's arm or your mom's arm? And you want to see how strong they are? Okay, so here's what this has to do with Job. Remember, Job is really, really suffering because the devil has gone after him. Uh, because the devil thinks Job and the devil thinks God are a bunch of phonies. The devil thinks salvation is, is a fake. Grace is not real. Uh, and here's Job, and he's suffering now, and Job thinks his suffering is totally unfair. Like, he, it's not fair that he's suffering the way he is, that he's been a really, really good person, and so he only deserves good things. And so today what we're going to see is God's going to show up and ask Job, show me your arm. Let, let me look at your arm. Yeah, can that arm save you? And then God's going to say, now look at my arm. Which, you know, God's not like there as like a person. He's actually there as a huge storm. But he's saying like, you think you can save yourself? You can't. Look at me and look at my strength. I have to save you. Okay, so here's what we want to know today. When, where are you, when you know that you mess up, where are you going to run? Kids, when you know you think something bad, you say something bad, you do something bad, like, where are you going to run? Are you going like, to, like, flex and say, you know what, I've done three bad things today. Yeah, I know, but I've done five really good things today. So I've been better than I have been bad, so I'm okay. That's not going to save you. As in, like, you, you, want, you want to be good. You really want to be good, uh, but your goodness can't save you. So where are you supposed to look? When you know you've been bad, when you know your life is not, you're not living it the way you're supposed to, where do you look? Where do you see God's strength most clearly saving you? It's really weird, but where you see God most strong is where? We can guess. Anybody want to venture a guess? The, isn't that crazy? It's the cross. Like, where do you see God most strong? With Jesus living for you and then dying for you on the cross in order to be.
defeat your sin, in order to crush the devil, in order for his strong arm to pull you out of death. We want to be good. We really do. We want to love God. We want to love others the best we can, but that will not get you into heaven. What gets you into heaven is Jesus being strong for you. On that flex cam, when we go to the Astros game, uh, I've got one kid who will remain nameless, uh, but when the flex cam, uh, he wants it to get on him, and this is what he's doing when the flex cam comes on. He's going like this, and he's pulling his arm down. And he's going, oh, look at my abs, <laughs> which doesn't make any sense, right? Like, he wants to look weak, and he wants to look like he didn't even know what he's talking about. This is not your abs, by the way. Like, these are your, under here uh, are your abs. Um, but that is actually, that's actually what we should be like is thinking like, man, I don't even know how strong I am. I know I'm not strong. Because when we know we're weak, we know Jesus is strong to save us. That's what Job needs to learn today. That's what God is going to teach Job. That's what we want to learn today. The book of Job is about conflict. In a word, it's conflict because Satan shows up in heaven, gets to talking to God, and there's this challenge thrown down that God's grace, his salvation— it's fake that since the fall of mankind, everyone belongs to the devil. And God challenges Satan. That's not true. I am saving a people by grace. Look at my servant Job and look at grace. And Satan says, let me go after him. I'll show you that grace is fake. Job's a liar and you're a liar. And so challenge accepted. We get this conflict of champions and Satan attacks Job, Job descends into despair in the midst of awful suffering. And in the midst of that awful suffering, he has received terrible counsel from friends. He hears good counsel from another comforter, Elihu, but Elihu is just the forerunner. Because God himself shows up in a terrible storm to challenge Job. And God has come to challenge and to defeat Job. Uh, and, and he's done it. Round one goes to God in this this, this wrestling match of sorts, and God picks Job back up and says, let's go another round. I'm not done with you. So we're going to be reading uh, from a few selections, Job chapters 40, 41, and 42. Please stand for the reading of God's word. So then the Lord answered Job again out of the whirlwind and said, dress for action like a man. I will question you. And you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring them low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold his strength in his loins, in his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff 
like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He's the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fishhook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who is first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride." Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes seize you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Job has been asking that why question. He had been asking that why question of why is he suffering like this, asking his friends who give him terrible answers, asking himself, asking God why. That question, why, it turns into a demand where Job demands that God show up and give an explanation, explain himself. Well, God does show up. We saw that last time, and we saw that he does not answer Job's why question, but instead demands that Job answer why Job believes in God. And Job submits, and he turns back to God. But we see here, that's where we left off. We pick up right there. You see that God is not done because this is only the beginning of Job's repentance. As in Job, he's not just been demanding the why, he's also been demanding that God show up and justify Job. That God show up and admit that Job did not deserve this suffering. So Job wanted an explanation and Job wanted vindication. So, after Job's initial submission, God picks him up. And God demands that Job justify himself, like he said he would. He said that earlier. And now God is saying, okay, Job, Job, you think, you think you're above evil. You talk as if you could exalt yourself to the place of king of creation, okay? Show me. Show me your ability to deal with the world's problems, Let's see it. Let's see you. Let's hear how you would subdue and overcome all the forces of evil. That will prove yourself. At that point, I will admit you are justified 
you're vindicated, uh, and, and that you can save your soul. So, uh, you think you can save yourself, Job. Uh, you must be able to judge evil in the world, overcome it. Let's go. And this is where, this is where God's challenge to Job gets super, super incredibly profound. It's as, if, it's as if God pauses here for a moment. Let's see it. Let's see you judge the world. Uh, pauses for a moment of awkward silence from Job. Job's got nothing to say in response. Since it's so obvious that he's not able to judge the evils of mankind, and he's not able to overcome the evils of mankind, God, he then turns and makes a, which could call a more feasible challenge to Job. Reducing the test from this heavenly test where he's battling God to an earthly test. God says, behold now behemoth, which I made as I made you. And then later he says, can you draw out Leviathan? Here's a fellow creature of yours, Job. Match your wisdom, match your strength and your might against him. If you, if you can't overcome all the evils of mankind, okay, how about you try overcoming the chaos of Leviathan? As in, like, surely, surely you can fare better against a dumb brute. Even though he's the king of the beasts, uh, since you no longer dare to contend with me, uh, the king of kings, go for this king of the beasts. There's a pagan version of this. Uh, it's similar, but it's different. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, this is old, old, old stuff. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, the goddess Ishtar uh, is super mad at the human Gilgamesh because he is not romantically interested in her the way she is in him. So this goddess makes her god dad, Anu, make a special bull, a bull of heaven. And this bull of heaven goes down to earth uh, in order to stomp and crush Gilgamesh. And the bull of heaven gets down to earth and starts decimating everything. Uh, nobody can stand up to it. It annihilates entire armies with a blast of its nostrils. But it doesn't go according to plan. Because Gilgamesh and his good buddy Enkidu kill the bull of heaven with a perfectly timed sword thrust uh, between the neck and the horns. It's not the end of the story. There's more. Uh, Ishtar doesn't give up that easily. But, but the bull of heaven uh, brings disgrace upon its creator, and the two humans get all the honor at its expense and the expense of the goddess. Okay, with Job, this is a paganized, rip-off version. With Job, God is making the challenge more fair. Instead of continuing to engage Job in combat himself, God commissions another champion, a creature of lower order than mankind, to serve as his champion in this challenge, in this duel with Job. Here's the fun stuff. There's tons and tons. There's oodles and oodles of debate over uh, what in the world is this behemoth. What is this Leviathan? And a lot of commentators uh, look at the description of the behemoth here, and they conclude it's a hippopotamus. Uh, and then, which they are terrifying, uh, like very, very terrifying. Um, but and, and then, and then they look at the description of the Leviathan, and they conclude it's a crocodile. Again, terrifying. Okay, others think the behemoth is the crocodile, 
and the Leviathan is a whale. And then others think the passage describes only one creature, that the behemoth is the Leviathan. This creature is the behemoth Leviathan. Uh, This creature, painted with some very highly figurative language, it's a terrible creature. Parts of the descriptors, the reason why there's so much debate is part of the descriptors, they just don't fit any real creature. And so some believe, this is God, not so much describing zoological creatures, uh, but uh, it's describing a mythological chaos monster. So God's point to Job is, listen, you talk, you talk like you don't need me. Okay, so Job, you overcome the evil in the world. No, can't do that. Okay, then I'll tell you what. Show me your strength to overcome chaos in nature, the chaos in the world. Just overcome this one creature. There was another man, uh, there was another man who desperately tried to take up this specific challenge given to Job. Back in the 19th century, the German atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche declared that God is dead. And he sees that people are turning away from the traditional idea of God, which he likes, but he is still very angry at everybody because of this problem that he called the last man. He says that the the last man is a person that goes on with life after he accepts the news that God is dead, and yet he goes on with life as if ideas like right and wrong, truth and falsehood, justice and injustice, good and evil still make sense. Nietzsche says that if, listen, if there is no God, you've no right to be telling anyone else how they should or should not live. To those who say, listen, I don't think there's a God, I don't know, but human life has value, and there's such a thing as injustice, and we need to work against it, Nietzsche spends his life screaming at everyone, wake up, stop being a coward. If you throw out God, you throw out all notions of justice and injustice, all notions of evil and good, suffering, meaning to life. There's only power. There's only strong eating weak. So, for example, if there is no God and no afterlife and no judgment day, how do you know slavery is wrong? If there's no bigger reality than nature, you can't look at nature because you look at nature, all you see is strong, eating, weak. When you get rid of God, there's no way to know what's right and wrong. There's no way to know your purpose. Life has no meaning. Death is the end. And when the sun dies and the earth dies and nothing of humans remains anymore, not even memory it, it, it will still all be meaningless, and that'll be the conclusion to it all. So he says that once we realize that God is dead, that there is no God, society will need people who can handle the fear that comes with that realization. And Nietzsche's solution is that modern society needs what he calls the ubermensch, which is the, the superman, the person who does not need meaning, the person who does not need to know what is right and what is wrong, a person who can deal with the fear that comes knowing there is no God. 
And Nietzsche admits that the full embrace of the meaningless of life is to take your own life. Now, most people who, you know, think Nietzsche's got something to say, they don't, they don't love that Debbie Downer conclusion. And so m- most people that think Nietzsche was brilliant, they go with the, the fun option. And they run with Johnny Rotten, Sex Pistols kind of stuff, who said in one of his songs, if nothing true, everything possible, which is really just a ripoff of what Dostoevsky uh, wrote. Dostoevsky didn't believe this, but he said, if God is dead, everything is permitted. Or people go with the third option, and they just they live for power, which is what Nietzsche said to do. You live to get, you live to exert power because that's all that's left. There's no truth, just power. It's what Voldemort says to Harry Potter at the end of the Sorcerer's Stone. There is no good and evil. There is only power in those too weak to seek it. Now, here's the problem. If Nietzsche says that every truth claim is a power play, then that truth claim is just a power play. So why listen to Nietzsche? As soon as someone says to you, you must not impose your views on other people, they are imposing their view on you. So why listen? That's the problem. Here's the irony, is everyone lives like there is absolute truth. Because deep down, everyone knows there's absolute truth. And at the same time, you both use absolute truth when it's convenient to get around it in your day-to-day life, uh, to get around in your day-to-day life, and then you suppress it when that absolute truth is inconvenient. Okay, here's another problem. Who told Nietzsche that power is good? Where did that come from? Who, uh, uh, Who told Nietzsche that power is something you should want? That is poaching on Christian land. He only knows that mankind desires power because he is made in the image of God. And that's part of being made in the image of God. That's part of God's glory is having dominion, which we pursue because we're made in God's image and we're supposed to mirror his glory. So Nietzsche wants to take up this challenge to Job and say, yes, we don't need God. We just need power. But God's point is, to Job is that we do not have the power that we think we have. This behemoth, this Leviathan creature is so terrible that Job is supposed to wake up and realize that if he can't overcome this creature of lower order according to his own strength and power, how big of a fool do you, do you have to be to think that you can supersede the creator who made that creature? God says this, will he, the behemoth Leviathan, make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? On earth there is not like his, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. This is going to win. This is, spoiler, God is going to win Job back. And just, you want to pause right here and say, oh, the irony, Right? For the irony for the old serpentine leviathan, that ancient snake monster devil. Oh, the irony that God will vanquish that ancient serpent by using as his representative agent in overcoming Job another member of the animal kingdom, another leviathan. Okay? 
And I want to say, and here's where I want to have my cake and eat it. Uh, and I want to mix metaphors, which is fine because the Bible does this all the time. Your English teacher will tell you, don't mix metaphors. God would tell you that's wrong. Mix metaphors. It's great. It's the best. Uh, okay, so if you think Nietzsche is profound, God's challenge to Job with the behemoth Leviathan, it goes deeper. Okay, below the surface. When God takes the challenge a step further and proposes that Job contend with this other monstrous champion, we think, we think that we're merely moving from heavenly dimension of, God, uh, of Job battling God to earthly dimension of Job battling the creature. But Leviathan, as we just spoiled, Leviathan is always a symbol for the foe, the foe of cosmic order. This Leviathan figure in the Bible, it signals the demonic dimension of a situation. And usually the Leviathan is a figure for Satan himself, like in Isaiah, like in Revelation. It's really clear there. So let me remind you. Let me remind you uh, of Job's first response to the three comforters that come to him. To, you know, uh, here he is. Job is, he's confronting them, but he's doing it while he's talking to God. So here's Job talking to God, and he unwittingly gets, as in like he, he, he says it, but I don't think he, he doesn't get what's actually, that this is actually going on. He says to God in chapter seven, am I the sea or a sea monster? That is, am I, am I Leviathan? that you set a guard over me, God? Like, what is man that you make so much of him that you set your heart on him? If I sin, what do I do to you, the watcher of mankind? Why have you made me your mark? Why have I become a burden to you? Isn't he saying, like, what could little old and insignificant me do that would make the transcendent God of the universe treat me like this? Like, you'd think I was the chaos sea monster Leviathan himself threatening the stability of the universe. And, and at that moment, we, I think we said this back in chapter 7, you, you, you got to imagine if you were the angels of heaven looking on, you, oh, oh, Job, if you only knew, do, if you only knew, if you only knew that your struggle is so crucial because it's been made the test case of the truthfulness of God uh, and his grace towards sin. Isn't like the stability of the universe, it is under attack by the real Leviathan, that ancient serpent. One Old Testament commentator put it like this, the angels saw the world trembling with every tremor of Job's spirit, for if the redemptive power of God could not preserve Job and the love of God, not only Job, but the world was lost to satanic chaos. So, this added challenge, this added challenge by God to Job to battle Leviathan, it is the greatest intimation that God gives to Job as to what is actually going on behind the scenes. As in the heavenly reality that Job is actually contending with the great monstrous dragon Leviathan the devil. God is saying to Job, Job, can you, can you justify yourself before the throne of ultimate justice and claim that you are innocent, claim that you are righteous because the devil Leviathan stands here at the throne of justice accusing you 
of great sin and guilt. And the devil stands here at the throne of justice accusing God that God can't even justify Job. Job, can you really justify yourself? So the world, the world today, to like come back to today, the world does continue to turn away from God as if he were dead. But Nietzsche would still be rolling over in his grave uh, because the world is still obsessed with what it calls justice. Over and over and over, all day long, the world wants to talk about justice using different language, whether it's the language of equality, equity, what's right, what's fair, what's good. And the world wants to wield its power to bring this justice about. And let me say this, that we here, <clears throat> we here should struggle for justice in the world. And we should want justice. We should not only strive for justice, we should want justice. And that kind of sounds backwards. It's not. I, I think we, we've got some admission, admission, admitting, confessing to do. As we, we actually do need to admit that we are here we're blind. I, everyone here is super smart and super gifted. And we need to admit that we're blind to a lot of injustices in the world. Because we don't see all the injustices going on all, all around the world. And we haven't, each of us here has not experienced every injustice in the world. We need to be the first ones that can admit it. Uh, we, that said, we also need to admit that we here do not have the power, that they out there do not have the power to overcome all the chaos and evil in the world. Not ultimately. And that said, each of these could be its own sermon. Uh, that said, we need to admit that each and every person here and each and every person out there and each and every person who has ever lived, we need to admit that each and every person deserves justice. But the justice that we deserve is not the justice that any of us wants. The devil is right about Job. Job is wrong about Job at this moment. Job cannot justify himself. He stands accused, and by himself he is guilty, and he is deserving of nothing less than eternal condemnation. So imagine, if you would, that Jesus came, and he came as a military general, and he said to us, hey, if you want to live, follow me. Okay, that's not good news. Only the brave, only the courageous, only the strong would be saved. Okay, then imagine Jesus, uh, he came as a philosopher, and he said, if you want to live, follow me. Okay, that's not good news, because then only the Smart, only the deep thinkers and feelers would be saved. Okay, then imagine Jesus came as an ethicist teacher and said, if you want to live, follow me. That's not good news because only the good, only the morally upright would be saved. As in all of that, salvation is only by your strength. It's all based on how good you are. Those salvations are completely exclusive. Those are the most exclusive salvations offered. Because what about, 
Sorry, let me indulge. Uh, what about people like me? I will be the first one to admit. Uh, what about people uh, like me who are not that strong? What about people like me who are not that good? Uh, what about people who are weak? What about, what about people who are just a mess? What about people who struggle over and over and over every day? Those are the people Jesus came to save. Jesus came to save the weak. He came to save the suffering. He came to save the dying. And he did it through dying. He saved us through his suffering. He came and he did it all through weakness. Jesus lived the most beautiful, faithful, loving, devoted life. And on the cross, he experiences the cosmic unraveling of eternal justice and wrath being poured out on him because on the cross, God is treating Jesus like he is sin itself. Okay, let's be really clear. This, that, that gospel, this is an exclusive gospel. And at the center of that exclusive gospel is the only inclusive, exclusive Savior there is. And that's why it's good news. Because this salvation is only for the weak. It's only for the sinful. It is only for the screwed up. It is only for the broken. It is only for the suffering and the dying. The gospel is only for bad people. That thing of like, what do you need? What do you need to be a Christian? It's true. It's corny. But all you need is need. Like to come to God with empty hands so that you can receive Jesus in this grace that you get by faith. This salvation that you get by grace. Can you, loved one, can you overcome the devil's accusations against you? No, you can't. And yet, you must. How? Someone's got to do it for you. What you have failed to do, someone's got to do it for you, and someone's got to pay the penalty for your failure, the penalty you do not want to pay. And you must put your faith in the one, this one, and receive his justification. Receive his vindication. Receive his triumph by grace through faith. That is simply trusting in this gospel of grace promised right after the fall that another champion would come and at the cost of his life, crush that serpent Leviathan. Alistair Begg, he's a Scottish Baptist minister, which is really funny. He's a Scottish Baptist minister. We love Baptists. It's just funny. Scottish Baptist minister in Cleveland, Ohio, of all places. He tells a story about his friend in Scotland who's moving from Aberdeen to Glasgow. And like a lot of ministers, this minister, he's got a big library. And like a lot of ministers, this minister feels uh, that the furniture can wait and that the first things that need to be put away are the books. So he's moving into his new home, uh, and uh, his new study is up on the second floor. So he's lugging his library up this windy staircase, 
you know, books after books, books, book, you know, commentaries and, and big concordances, the, the kind of books that make ministers feel really, really smart. And, uh, but, you know, just they're boxes of books, they're suitcases of books. And uh, his three-year-old son looks at him, stops him and says, Dad, Daddy, can I help you? And, and so, you know, the minister dad looks at, at his son and says, sure you can. And so he goes and he grabs this small bundle of magazines he gives it to his little boy and says, there, you, you can help me with these. And he starts up again, carrying all these books up, up the stairs. And, and just a few moments later, he hears, he hears his little boy crying. And he goes and he finds him on the stairs. But the child, little boy, is no longer uh, carrying the little bundle of magazines. Now he's got this super big, large concordance, which his father had never given him to carry. The little child had taken the burden to himself and he could not bear the weight of it. And so the father looks at his child and he looks at his burden and he picks them both up and he carries them into the study. Loved ones, like Job, we are carrying a burden that our Father in Heaven has never given us to carry. And it is too much. And if we will cry out to Him, He will come and He will take your burden and He will take you both in His strong arm, mighty to save, and He will carry you home. It's Job's confession here, right at the end, this is his repentance. This is the reversal. You know, this mirrors what he started off with. This is the reversal of his complaint. He's, as in like he's not, he's not coming clean with sins that happened before all of his suffering, like what his accusing friends have been telling him to do. No, here he is confessing the sinful rebelliousness of his heart that kicked off and has sustained his complaint. Job wanted vindication. And the good news is God shows up in a terrifying earthquake judgment to say, Job, you are my vindication. As in, see this servant Job and see the gospel of grace for sinners. It is true. And our Lord is mighty to save. Let's pray. Father, we run to your throne of grace because you have told us it is good to run to your throne of justice and to seek your grace because there, that is what we find with our Lord and Savior. We, we find grace sufficient to overcome our sin, grace sufficient to overcome the devil, grace sufficient to overcome even our death. Lord, help us to believe. Help us to put our faith not in our own strength, not in our own goodness. Lord, bless us to put our faith in your strength and in the goodness of our Lord and Savior who is good for us and who is at work in us right now through grace uh, to, again, change us, to look more and more like our Savior. Father, help us to hold on to grace, to love one another and to love you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.